Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And today, before I begin, I want to remind you that there's a website associated with this particular podcast called wealthformula.com. Lots of resources over there for you to check out, including the ability to sign up for some of our lists, such as the accredited investor list. We've got some cool stuff popping through there. Even though the real estate market is not hopping, there's some other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. If you're an accredited investor, if you're interested in this kind of thing, go to wealthformula.com and sign up for Investor Club. Now, for today's show, though, I you know, it's interesting. I am going to talk about something that... I didn't really think I was all that interested in before. You know, I haven't spent much time on this concept of short-term rentals, right? Vacation rentals, really, you know, like the VRBO stuff and all that. And I didn't because it didn't sound particularly appealing to me. You know, I, I'm just thinking like, okay, I'm going to buy like one house and take care of it and, you know, make a few bucks, whatever. So anyway, I kind of ignored it. But then I, I had a few people ask me to interview uh, Tim Hubbard for this week's podcast. And, and I may have changed my mind on this whole concept because here's the deal. Okay. The reality is unless you're a limited partner in a syndication, which, you know, if you're an accredited investor, if you're in our investor club, you, you may have already done. So there really is no such thing as truly passive income in real estate. That is a complete fallacy. I could tell you from personal experience people who own like, you know, 10, 15 houses, for example, and they rent them out, they hate life. Apartment buildings are better, but they're still work. And so for me, a lot of reasons why I've gone with the, you know, huge assets is because they're like running businesses. So then instead of, you know, being a landlord, you're a business owner. And so that has been um, my niche. Um, and it's also obviously at a much higher scale. And so there's a lot more profitability potentially there. But again, I'm going back to this concept because I think uh, this uh, short-term rental concept, because I actually think it's pretty compelling for probably, probably many people who listen to this podcast. Okay. And again, if you are okay making 300 bucks per month for all these hours that you're working in long-term rentals, then that's fine. But, you know, I think I'm guessing most of you are not, but short-term rentals are different. 
because they provide, I would say, a sexier take on active ownership of real estate for busy, busy professionals. Again, make no mistake, there will be work involved. There will be. But now this, you might be making five times the monthly income that you would with a traditional long-term rental. Now, maybe that rental income is still not that compelling. And quite honestly, at this point in my life, I'm, I wouldn't do this for the purpose of making a, you know, a couple grand uh, even per month because it would just be an aggravation. But what if you started buying properties that you liked in places that you might actually like to visit yourself on occasion? You know, maybe you, you're a person who likes to go to Lake Tahoe or maybe likes to go to the desert once in a while, Sedona, I don't know, who knows? But what if, what if you had one of those and you wanted to visit and at any point in the future, you could theoretically flip the switch, you could live there, whatever you want. But in the meantime, short-term rentals have this extremely advantageous tax benefit that makes it far more compelling to me than even the cash flow. And not just through the real estate professional type like me, the REP types. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to probably any number of the Ask Buck uh, shows and, and there's a description of that. But bottom line is if done properly, you could have a short-term rental, do a cost segregation analysis and apply that depreciation to other active income, right? Let me reiterate that because and, and again, I'm not a tax professional, right? So I, you cannot see this as tax advice. I, you know, I'm, I'm just a guy trying to help out. <laughs> just a guy with some ideas. And uh, sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. And so I don't want you to hold me accountable for things uh, because I, I introduced them to you. But my understanding is that through material participation in short-term rentals, that that depreciation that you ordinarily wouldn't be able to tap into with a long-term rental, you actually can with a short-term rental in various circumstances. In other words, that depreciation becomes activated and activated losses can be used against your W-2 income. So, if you can truly pull this off, the tax savings alone would be worth doing it, in my humble opinion. And again, I, I just think it's a, a, a much bigger you know, tax play than a cash flow play. Listen, for most professionals out there, most of the options that you got, they kind of suck, okay? Conservation easements, pretty much dead on arrival at this point. The IRS has, you know, dismantled syndicated conservation easements. Everyone's under some kind of audit right now. And then there's oil and gas, which, you know, I haven't invested myself in, in years. And the reason is because it always ends up being that there's some kind of crook or fraud or something involved. And, um, and so I don't like it. I don't, I don't like oil and gas. And I don't like all this, you know, stuff that claims to, you know, create some tax benefits from the, the energy and oil and gas or carbon or whatever. And then you Google the person and they don't even show up on Google. 
That is concerning to me. Okay. Now, so bottom line is short term rentals in this paradigm could possibly be the best thing out there if you're trying to mitigate taxes and you are a high earning W 2 wage earner and not a real estate professional. So, this has got to sound interesting, intriguing to some of you. <laughs> I suppose a lot of you. So uh, we're going to hear all about it from an expert in this topic right after these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Tim Hubbard. Tim is a real estate investor specializing in short-term rentals. He has a website called RestMethods.com. And he's also the uh, host of the Short-Term Rental Riches podcast. Tim, welcome to Wealth Formula. Thanks for having me, Buck. Happy to be here. Yeah, so it was, uh, we were discussing offline. I mean, you, uh, you came up uh, by um, a few of the people in my investor ecosystem as a resource for short-term rentals, which is not something that I've really spent much time talking about why don't you start out just kind of explaining how you kind of got in this space? Sure. Yeah. I, I, I've been a real estate investor for a long time and I, I started with traditional long-term rentals, uh, small multifamily properties in particular. And I'm from California originally. And I started looking outside of California for other markets to invest in a long time ago. And as I was doing that, I was staying in short-term rentals as I was doing some of my market research. And I ran the numbers on one, one of the Airbnbs I was staying in as I was looking for long-term rental properties there and realized that it was making way more money than some of the potential investments I was looking at. So I ended up switching some of my portfolio at that point over to short-term rentals and then started kind of focusing on that and been doing that ever since. Very cool. And um, so let's talk a little bit about why you switched. And, you know, part of it is the profitability issues, right? So 
Why don't you talk about some of the advantages of short-term rentals compared to, you know, your traditional, you buy a house and rent it out kind of thing for a longer period. I mean, obviously there's a monetary advantage there, right? And, and maybe you can kind of tell us how typically how much better that is and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, for me, I mean, I got into real estate originally to have passive income and to be able to travel kind of whenever I wanted. Yeah. And so I kind of, I, I guess it kind of came into the short-term rentals in a roundabout way. I started with real estate because I knew that that was a way that a lot of people became wealthy and it could be passive. So I didn't want to get into short-term rentals and not, and have it not be passive too. So I figured that part out. We can, we can talk about that later, but for me, it really just came down to the passive income buck. I wanted to be able to travel and support uh, lifestyle and the things I wanted to do. And I found that short-term rentals got me there quicker mm-hmm. and I would say, and, and the interesting thing is too, I, I had quite a few properties in my portfolio that already worked for short-term rental. So I, I don't think that every property is a good candidate for short-term rental, but a lot of mine were in sort of downtown areas and they were near restaurants and stuff like that. So it wasn't a big risk for me to try to convert a couple of those over and see how they did. And so I did that and haven't, haven't really looked back since. Yeah. It's, so uh, let me, let me ask you this then, cause you brought up the point of, you know, some being better than other, what, what makes a good short-term rental compared to other properties? Well, the thing with short-term rentals too, is that they're not like, there's so many different ways to do it. So like if we compared a multifamily building to another multifamily building, for example, we might break it down into class A, class B, class C, class D, but with short-term rentals, just on Airbnb, they have 56 different categories to, to divide the types of properties that are in there. And that can be anything from a tree house. Now, you know, you've seen crazy short-term rentals to an urban apartment downtown. So they're all different. And that's one thing that we kind of have to understand in the beginning, they all have different types of guests that they attract. And so for me, I think some of the best candidates for short-term rentals are properties that attract the most type of guests for the most amount of reasons. So yeah, uh, business travel, vacation, you know, got it. places where can visit kids in college, all those types of things. Sure. Makes sense. So, you know, one, one thing that I always kind of wonder about with short-term rentals is how do you navigate the local ordinances with regard to short-term rentals versus long-term, you know, I, I actually live in California too. I don't know. I'm over here in uh, Montecito. And mm-hmm. uh, there's very clear, uh, clearly delineated areas where, and not very many of them, where you can have short-term rentals. You run into that nationally quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, for me, what, what I've noticed is that a lot of times the strict short-term rental regulations tend to happen in places that also have housing shortages or have more of a housing shortage, I should say. A lot of times those are in denser areas like uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco or you know Manhattan. So you definitely run into it. It's something that's always changing. Um, so it's best if you're planning on investing in short-term rentals to be in a place that already has that figured out. 
you know, where you can already get a permit, you know, it's legal. It gets a little dicey and riskier if you're going into a place that doesn't have any rules set up yet Mm -hmm. because they could just one day institute a new rule. Uh, There are some other ways kind of around that. Now there's an interesting thing happening with short-term rentals too. And that's that people are just staying in them longer now, kind of living in short-term rentals. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, if you, if you pass a 30 night stay, for example, most of the time those regulations don't, um, aren't enforceable for, it's not short term rental anymore. Got it. And, um, just real quick is a follow up on this. Is there like a specific resource or website that you use when you're just trying to like figure out, okay, I I'm looking for a house and maybe it'd be cool to have a place in, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth in this neighborhood, like how do I how do I figure out whether or not it's legal or is that um, is that is that something that you really just kind of have to drill down to a lot more than one resource? It's it's pretty easy to find out these days. Airbnb actually has their own section of their website where oh, they you can do. go on and it talks okay. about yeah. But it's worth, you know, if you're at all uncertain, you can most of the time Google like the local jurisdiction or the county website and they'll have rules on there. Uh, it, it is interesting, too. I mean, you might have a city like Houston, for example, or or Dallas or whatever it happens to be that says, yes, you can do short term rentals here, but you can still have neighborhoods within that city that maybe have an ordinance around it. So you got to check a little further than just the citywide. Right. And, and even within that, like if you have apartment buildings or, you know, like um, condominiums, things like that, they probably have their own mm-hmm. little condo association rules as well i'm guessing right yeah yeah hoa i mean there's some hoas that are for vacation rentals you know and they're used to that and then there's some that don't allow it at all and then hoas again are one of those things that can change too so if they don't have a rule in place and a lot of owners say hey we're not really liking these short-term rental things they could have a committee meeting and they could change it so um best to kind of just know up front that there's a, there's a process in place already. So, you know, a big part of why you said you want, you know, you're interested in this was passive income. And, and I think it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that's faster because I think everybody who, uh, or I shouldn't say everybody, but myself included, you know, starts out with the purple books, uh, of my, uh, mm-hmm. my friend, Robert Kiyosaki, you read it and you think, gosh, this sounds like a great idea, right? I mean, you're just going to like accumulate passive income. And the next thing you know, you're riding off into the sunset. But the challenge is that it's incrementally extremely difficult to get to those numbers quickly. Like, you know, if you, even if you're getting 8 9 10% per year, the amount you need to deploy in order to get back, you know, that replacement income that maybe is your goal is huge. Mm-hmm. And what you're suggesting is, hey, short-term rentals might be a way to get there quicker, right? So the question I have for you is, how passive is this? Because, you know, you, you know, certainly with, even with apartment buildings, I can't say that they're terrible, you know, they're, they're not super passive. I mean, they, you know, everybody makes it sound like it's like, you know, mailbox money, but it is work. And so you've had experience both in long-term rentals and short-term rentals. I'm curious on your thoughts on, um, you know, how much work it is. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot more operational pieces when it comes to a short-term rental. I mean, if you have uh, my average stay is like a little 
less than four nights. So if you compare that to a, a year long lease, you got a lot of people coming in, you got a lot of people going out, but I would say, you know, I've had long-term rentals that were a pain in the butt or long-term management companies were managing my properties were a pain in the butt. So it really comes down to the team and the operations in place. Uh, I think one of the nice things about short-term rentals is that if you do find a good property and it's a good market and it, and it's, projected or it's earning how you projected it was going to, you have a lot more cash flow than you would with a long-term rental. So you can afford to hire a good property manager and still be making more net income than you could with long-term rentals. That's, you know, every market's different, of course, but that's what I sort of found is that I was looking at these single family homes, turnkey type investments that were making a few hundred bucks a month after everything was said and done after paying management. And then I realized I could get just a few properties that earned, you know, three, four, five times that in terms of net income. And so that cut my goal down, my the amount of properties I needed to reach yeah. that yeah. financial freedom to leave the rat race, if you will. Yeah. It, it cut it in half or by in thirds or in quarters. Yeah. Well, that, that I mean, again, that makes a huge difference. But um, uh, you mentioned property management. Are there typically companies that are specific that deal with short-term rentals as opposed to long-term rentals. And, you know, is that, is that part of the strategy in terms of deciding where to buy? Yeah, I think, well, one of the nice thing is, is that when I started years ago, short-term rentals, it was kind of like the wild, wild west. You know, there wasn't a lot of regulations in cities and uh, it just wasn't, um, as evolved as it is now. And so now we have tons of software tools that we can use to automate a lot of parts of the process. We don't have to actually meet our guests to get them into our properties and to protect our properties. There's all these types of things. And along with that has come a lot of professional property managers too. So it used to be a lot harder to find a good short-term rental property manager, but now as they become much more popular, uh, it's easier, but it's also a lot easier to manage it yourself if you wanted to. And that's how I've set up uh, my portfolio. Now, do you use, uh, I mean, should anybody who's really doing these kinds of uh, short-term rentals, basically you are, um, I mean, you're going to use Airbnb or VRBO or booking.com. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. you're not going to, you're not going to just go out there and market yourself, right? I mean, is that, um, is that the case in general? Yeah, I think most people start off um, with just Airbnb maybe, you know, but again, it depends on the market you're in because VRBO and those other OTAs, online travel agencies have been around for a long time, but it's definitely easier to maybe just start with Airbnb because they handle the payments for you. They, they provide additional liability insurance and property protection. But I think the professionals out there are, are on as many platforms as makes sense for that market. So uh, the more exposure you have, the, the better for your properties. How much of a cut do those guys take typically? It ranges. You know, Airbnb actually takes like 3%. Oh, that's if not you bad. Choose, if you, But they charge the guests a lot. They charge the guests like 
13 to 17%. So it adds up to quite a lot. And they also have another option if you want to handle more of the fees up front and the guest pays less, but uh, they have a a minimal fee, but booking.com, for example, is 15%. So they, they kind of range, they kind of range. Let's talk a little bit, uh, you know, we talk a lot about taxes on this show, my friend. And mm-hmm. so tell me about um, the tax advantages, uh, a compare and contrast of the short-term rental versus long-term rental situation. Now, in the long-term rental world, you know, you've got your typical stuff, which you're going to have in short-term rentals, like, you know, your 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 interest payments on your mortgage, Um but let's talk about depreciation in particular, because, you know, one of the big things with long-term rentals, at least um, through 2020, uh, 2022, was that you would do a cost segregation analysis, get your get your 100% bonus depreciation right onto the sunset, writing off your entire equity uh, stack there. So can, can you still do that in, uh, in short-term rentals? Yeah, you can. Um, And there's actually an interesting thing with short-term rentals. You know, if we want to take the max tax benefits from a traditional real estate investment, we want to be a real estate professional, right? Mm -hmm. And that can be difficult to qualify for, for a lot of people, especially if you're a doctor or you're, Mm -hmm. uh, you have a full-time job, you can't technically qualify as a real estate professional, but with short-term rentals, they're different depending on your average length of stay. So if your average length of stay is seven days or less, it's, it's considered more of a business than it is uh, a real, a past real estate investment. So they have what they call materially participating uh-huh. and that can make you eligible to use all of those losses or that depreciation to offset your other income. Interesting. Uh, so from so another, in that from scenario, job. the depreciation becomes activated for mm-hmm. a non real estate professional. Right. That's huge. Right. That's absolutely huge. huge. Now, is there, is there a, uh, is there a difference in the amount of depreciation that you can take? So for example, in 2022, if you did it cost seg and you had, you know, 30% of the property was considered personal property, you could take that entire 30% in the first year. This year it's, you know, 80%, not a hundred percent. Right. Same rules or are they different? And does it depend on, you know, how long people stay and all that kind of stuff? Same rules when it, when it comes to depreciation, as long as you're materially participating. So if you switched and you started having month long stays, for example, and your average throughout that tax year was higher than seven days, then you wouldn't be able to materially participate again. That would go back to uh, being a, a more of a long-term rental. So you got to make sure if you're trying to offset your other income that you keep your average reservation at, at seven days uh, or less, but otherwise, yeah, everything. Should yeah. Still and if you are an REP, it doesn't matter anyway. I mean, then you're, then you're golden either way. Cause we have both. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a real estate professional myself, although I played doctor on some podcasts. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm curious about this too, Tim, I have, you know, my crew here, the wealth formula nation, there's a lot of people who make a good chunk of money, right? And do you find that in some cases people are looking at this and saying, hell, I'll just, you know, I'll buy a place in Tahoe and I'll spend a couple of weeks there 
every year myself. And then I'll also use it as a short-term rental. And maybe I make a little bit of money, but at least I don't lose any money. Do you find like that being a common, you know, approach to this? Yeah. I mean, if, if, you know, you're making a really high income and you're paying a ton of tax and you can buy a property for a million dollars, for example, take all that bonus depreciation. I mean, you, you, you'd be fine breaking even, I would think, because you're going to save a ton of money. And then you also, you know, hopefully it's a good investment that's actually cash flowing too. But another nice thing, Buck, is that a lot of times short-term rentals are different than long-term rentals too. They can be fun as well. They can be vacation rentals, places where you want to spend time. And so a lot of times you might have like a couple scenario where the wife or the husband uh, has more time and maybe they tackle the short-term rental investment a little bit more, but as long as they're filing jointly, they can still get the tax benefits. They can still have some uh, good investments and then also a place that maybe they can enjoy a little bit of the year as well. Um, so I think that's a good strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, let me ask you too, what is, um, so if you're looking at, if you're looking at, um, you know, what's going on in the economy right now uh, with inflation post-COVID, et cetera. What's the timing like right now for this kind of stuff? Do you do you feel like do you feel like it's you know as good a time as ever to get in, or do you think it's uh maybe hold off for a few months or or what? Yeah, good question. I I think it comes back to what type of short-term rental you're investing in and also what market it's in. When we had COVID, I mean travel was crazy during those times. Everything was kind of crazy, right? And a lot of people were leaving big cities and they were buying vacation rental homes outside of the big cities. And so over the last couple of years, we saw a huge increase in supply in, in the vacation rental type category, not necessarily in every market, but in some cities a lot more than others. At the same time, we kind of saw a lot of the short-term rental supply uh, diminish or go down in the bigger cities. So the supply supply is changing in all these different types of categories um, over the years. I would say that depending on the market, there is some oversupply going on in some of these cities with vacation rentals, um, just pure vacation rentals. But there's good data that we can use now to sort of dig into this a little more. There's a company called airdna.co that that's all they do. They just pull statistics. They pull average occupancies and average daily rates. Uh, they're worldwide uh, and they get their data from Airbnb and VRBO and HomeAway. So you can see, you know, if I was interested in investing in a city, for example, I would see what the occupancy is doing and the average daily rate. And if it's kind of fallen off a cliff, then that might make me a little more cautious. But if I can see that the amount of supply is going up the same time that the occupancy is staying steady, then that's a, that's a really good sign for market. From an IRS perspective, <laughs> is there a minimum, like say you're having trouble running the place, uh, mm -hmm. is there a minimum amount of time that it needs to be rented in order for it to qualify for all of those benefits that we discussed? Yeah, that's a good question. As far as I understand, I best talk to your tax professionals always, but uh, as far as I understand, there's actually like seven different ways that you can qualify to materially participate 
I think the two most popular ones are one, if you spend a hundred hours on the short term rental and no one else spends more time than you, uh, whether it's a housekeeper, whether it's whoever it is, which this could be a really good strategy for someone that maybe buys one towards the end of the year, does design and furnishes the property and does all that. And then maybe hands it off to a manager the next year. Uh, that's one way, as far as I know, I don't know of a requirement that actually had to be rented for a certain amount of time during that year. Um, But I would definitely, definitely check. The second way that a lot of people are qualified to materially participate is if they spend 500 hours throughout the year uh, on the property. Uh, And that can be combined too. So if someone went out and bought five short-term rentals, they can combine all those hours as well. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and, and if they combine those two hours, by the way, is that just for, I mean, could, could that also qualify? I mean, again, I'm asking you a tax question. I know you're not a, a CPA, but you've been around this. But in your opinion, from what you know, could having four or five of these um, uh, short-term rentals actually go ahead and uh, help you to qualify towards just being an REP? In other words, could you be an REP just just because you have short-term rentals? Um or is it, or, or is it, you know, that you're already an REP and you're using this also, um, or you're activating it because you're, you know, your, your active participation. I, I know that gets a little complicated, but <laughs> no, no, it- no, it's a, it's a good question. Um, it's actually, so you're either going to be one or the other when it comes on a property base. So like, you're not going to be a real estate professional and materially participate because, to qualify for material participation, it has to have that average reservation length of seven days or less. Uh, and if it goes over that, then you can't qualify on the material participation side. Um, but if you were spending more time on that property than any other job that you had, and it was over seven days and you would be a real estate professional if you met their requirements. So you're not going to be both. Um, and it's interesting because I, I have multifamily properties, for example, where I don't have all of the units in there as short-term rentals. Yeah. And so then that brings up, uh, you know, it makes it a little more difficult. Like, okay, are you, because I'm a real estate professional too. It's like, okay, do you want to use that? I, I think that the benefits are the same yeah. uh, either way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It does get a little complicated. <laughs> yeah. And, but it's, but it's a very, I mean, it's a very powerful tool for W2 uh, individuals totally. who've been trying to figure out. In fact, you know, I can't think of anything outside right now of oil and gas that can get you an activation of depreciation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, and of course my listeners know that I'm, I'm not a believer in oil and gas because it's full of, 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 of crooks. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. so, so this is a, a good, uh, good way to do this. All right. So let's talk, uh, you have a, you have a course uh, or you have some courses, right? Uh, are they, uh, and they are at this, uh, rest methods.com. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been, uh, you know, years ago, I, I live really far away from most all, most of my portfolio is all in the U S. And so friends were asking me over the years, how are you managing this? Cause mm-hmm. I do manage with my own team, all my portfolio and we've managed tens of thousands of guests. So we've, we've learned quite a bit. And, uh, so I've been doing some live events over the last years and I've wrapped some of that into an online course that you can find at restmethods.com. It's got kind of my whole process, what I look 
for and how I look for a team and how I set things up and automation, all that, all that fun stuff. Got it. And the podcast again is short term rental riches. And uh, I'm sure you can find that everywhere. Hey, one Mm -hmm. last question before I forget, because I should have asked you this financing. Uh, this kind of property is a lot more difficult, presumably, than financing, you know, residential stuff it, long term. Yeah, good question. Important piece of the the real estate investment puzzle, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, so it depends on the type of property. Again, a lot of my properties are smaller multifamily properties, and a lot of them were actually rented as long term rentals before I converted them. Uh, so I bought them with traditional yeah. commercial financing. Um, they do have a lot more lenders, just like they have a lot more property managers now that specify or in, uh, yeah, specify in financing for short term rentals. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there are a lot more bigger, you know, nationwide lenders that are open to it. And so way more options than before, but it's definitely something you got to make sure everyone's aware of. Yeah. Good stuff, Tim. I uh, appreciate you being on Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, I'm sure a bunch of people are going to be heading over to that website, restmethods.com and listening to you uh, on your podcast. And, um, you know, uh, you're doing great work. So thanks for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. And we'll love to have you back again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed that show. I actually found it to be really compelling, frankly, and I got my eyes on some thoughts, uh, my eyes on some some areas throughout the country that I think it, it could make a lot of uh, potential sense to, you know, have a property or two. Like Lake Tahoe sounds really, really, really appealing to me, especially the Nevada side. So maybe someday I go and, you know, retire and live, uh, you know, 51% of my life on the, you know, on the, the, the Nevada side of Tahoe for tax purposes or something like that. Who knows? But anyway, hope you enjoyed the show. And I highly encourage you to, you know, check out this guy's website, check out the courses if you're interested and also his uh, podcast. Um, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.